Well, early next week will mark a grim anniversary in this country. It's been nearly two years now. It will be two years on Monday, Tuesday, since the deadliest killing spree in Canadian history took place in Nova Scotia. Over the course of 13 hours on April 18th and 19th, 2020, a lone gunman shot and killed 22 people in 16 different locations. We now know the gunman, of course, was dressed in a police uniform, drove a replica police vehicle for much of those 13 hours. But to this day, families of the victims continue to ask why the RCMP did not provide the kind of information they say could have better protected the community from a killer on the loose. There is a public inquiry underway now in Halifax, which is also facing some criticism as it unfolds. In the midst of all of this, and right ahead of that two-year anniversary, comes a new book on those horrific 13 hours nearly two years ago now. Joining me now is investigative journalist and author Paul Polango. His book is called 22 Murders, Investigating the Massacres, Cover-Up, and Obstacles to Justice in Nova Scotia, an expose of the deadliest killing spree in Canadian history. Uh, Paul Polango, thank you for your time tonight. Glad to be here. I've been trying to brush up on what's happened in this inquiry that's now underway into this horrific incident, trying to figure out what's been uncovered, what we now know that we didn't know, and it is painfully difficult, even today, to try to get a clear picture of what went so terribly wrong that night. Well, you're not the only one. And from the beginning, when I started doing this two years ago, I mean, it's two years Monday, this Monday that it happened. Um, I looked at what was happening and unfolding. And I recognized, even though I'm a retired journalist and an active glass artist in Chester Basin, Nova Scotia, uh, I'm still sentient, and I, I recognize that I've seen this pattern before, and this is what they're going to do. They're going to deny, 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 say that the RCMP did heroic things, box out the media, make the story disappear from uh, uh, newspapers and television shows, and then once they're forced to have an inquiry, have a muddled inquiry where they just throw documents out, let everyone have a feeding frenzy, but everyone will pick a different thing. So there's no cohesive narrative about what happened. Meanwhile, they'll interject at key moments with heroic stories of what the RCMP did or, or tragic stories that had happened to the RCMP. And everyone will be confused about why are we having this hearing? So that's why I wrote the book early in the cycle, because I recognize they're going to do this. There needs to be a cohesive narrative to show what's really going on. And I'd hope to land it somewhere, you know, around now where, when I expected some of the, many of the hearings to be held and they're about to do an interim report, but instead of me dovetailing with them, they delayed for four or five months and they dovetailed with me. So now the hearings are going on just as the book is coming out. I suspect that's the worst nightmare because I have a, a cohesive alternative narrative that shows what the story is. Paul, you said in a, in a previous interview that when you started out, you may have known about 60% of the story and you figured by the time the book was released, you may know about 90%. What have you found out since? What do, we, what do you now know? that we did not well, know back then. When I, when I got the book contract in, uh, I guess, November, December, 2020, I had written the most horrible book proposal you could ever see. It was like snippets of ideas. And uh, Craig Payette from Random House said, I like where you're going. 
how much of the story you know? I said sixty percent. How much you? I said how much you're going to have by the time you get there? Ninety percent. And what I learned in that interim was all kinds of things. Like we uncovered documents showing that the RCMP was destroying evidence in the case. Published it in Frank Magazine, which was the only magazine that would publish it, and it was totally ignored by the mainstream media. Yeah, we eventually uncovered 911 tapes, which refuted the RCMP story that they didn't know that shooter Gabriel Wortman was dressed as a policeman driving a replica police car until the next morning when his girlfriend came out of the woods. And the 911 tape showed uh, the first three callers said it's Gabriel Wortman dressed as a policeman driving a police car. And he's the guy doing it. So, you know, we took that away from them. We uncovered tapes. Um, in the strangest story, um, I one of the first stories I wrote in Frank was picked up by a podcast host, uh, Jordan Bonaparte, who does the nighttime podcast. And we talked about the story about this new timeline I established for what happened. And some a woman listening in Orangeville, Ontario, uh, said, I remember something from nine months ago. I heard these policemen in the woods and they were lost. And they found a body. And I said, where did you hear that? She said, on a police scanner app. And then we eventually tracked down the archives for that tape and found out what they were doing at night. And the, the RCMP had never released any of this stuff. And then eventually we found, uh, through sources, we found the videotapes of the shooting of uh, Gabriel Wortman at the Irving Big Stop on April 19th which again refuted the official police watchdog report saying that it was a clean shoot and this is what happened. And we can show with the tapes, that's not what happened. In fact, he left out entire segments in his report. So, you know, along with other interviews, we're able to develop a story showing that everyone is lying and that there's a cover-up. There's obviously a cover-up. And the commission that was appointed to do it was first appointed to do a review which is a documentary review with no witnesses called, no cross-examination or nothing. They were forced to call an inquiry. They sat around for over a year, finally started the inquiry, and all they're doing is providing documents pretty well and no real cross-examination. So it's, a, it's an, a, an inquiry, a review disguised as an inquiry. So much of what the rest of us understood about what unfolded that night, the things that I remember distinctly about that, is his ability to move around without anyone stopping him. Um, the lack of communication, the families have talked about this repeatedly, that they were not given the information that they needed to protect themselves from a gunman on the loose. Are those things all still exactly true? Oh, they're true. I mean, last week I reported uh, again in documents that I obtained mm -hmm that under the Canada Labor Code, the, the RCMP was cited for 18 violations for that weekend, including communications, uh, not uh, arming their, their and, and supervising their staff very well. Uh, for example, after the shootings of Mounties in Spiritwood in 2006, Saskatchewan, and in 2005, four Mounties in Marathorpe, and three in Moncton in 2014, they were under Labor Code uh, orders to uh, provide members with night vision goggles. Never done. They never did it. So when they got to port pick they're operating in the dark. They didn't have any of the equipment they needed. Their communication systems were ratty. Their supervision was incredible. They had essentially minor 
officers. They had a traffic staff sergeant as the incident commander. You know, this is the RCMP story in a nutshell. So everything that's happened has been designed to cover up this incompetence, obvious incompetence, and um, embarrassing sort of supervision. But the RCMP and its its enablers in government continue to say, uh, you know, as, as, as the RCMP union person said in the Globe Mail the other day, our response was textbook. And you look at it, Everyone, like, there's why would the Globe and Mail write a story quoting a person who's self interested saying that the operation, the, the response was textbook when 13 people were killed, probably five or six of them, while the RCMP were at Porta Pick, and then Wortman got away the next day and killed nine more people. It was never stopped until he accidentally ran into a Mountie after driving 200 kilometers. But this is what the RCMP wants the public to believe was textbook. Yeah. Paul, I, I was in these cases, I, and I've covered cases like this before. I always like to, to you know, to remind that the, you know the RCMP weren't pulling the trigger here. You know, there was a gunman at, in all this who, who's is responsible for this at the end of the day. Uh, but when you looked at what happened that night, were the officers sent out to try to stop this simply not given an opportunity, not properly sent out? with the right tools and the right capacity, the right guidance to actually try to, to try to try to stop them. It was a difficult situation, but it's quite clear listening to the tapes. And this is the Canada labor code violations that the supervision was horrendous. You know, at one point they made the fundamental, you know, the first rule of policing in a critical incident is preservation of life. Same with prison guards, whatever. All law enforcement officers operate by the principle of preservation of life. In this matter, not only did the RCMP not preserve one life, but they made assumptions that caused lives to be lost. For example, in the middle of the night, uh, according to the records, the, an officer heard a gunshot at Portapec, and their assumption was, oh, he just killed himself. So you know what they did? They went home, 6.30 in the morning, places are burning. They wouldn't allow the fire departments in. They had no idea how many were dead. They thought there were only five, only five. So they went home. Bodies were still lying on the road. They weren't, tar they weren't cordoned off, nothing. People were driving through the scene and there were bodies on the road at 9.30 in the morning. Yeah. They went home and then Wortman comes back alive after having a little nap and starts killing people again. So you tell me, you can say all you want about, you know, the RCMP defenders, they didn't pull the trigger, but their job was to preserve life. And they did nothing right in this. You know, they could say, the union could say it was a textbook response. I think the people would see otherwise. I'm speaking with Paul Palango. His new book is called 22 Murders, Investigating the Massacres, Cover-Up and Obstacles to Justice in Nova Scotia, an expose of the deadliest killing spree in Canadian history. After this, we'll talk more about where this inquiry may go. The families are clearly still looking for answers. What are they saying? What are they hoping for? Will they get it? That's next. I'm back with investigative journalist and author Paul Polango. We're talking about his new book, 22 Murders, Investigating the Massacres, Cover-Up and Obstacles to Justice in Nova Scotia. It is an expose of the deadliest killing spree in Canadian history. Paul, you've spoken to the families. Uh, I remember a lot of the coverage from the months after this all unfolded, how frustrated they were, how much they fought for an inquiry. How are they feeling now? 
they're all feeling pretty well bruised and battered by all this. Because you'll remember from the beginning, you know, you probably wouldn't remember this. It was long ago. Um, Justin Trudeau on his first or second comment about this says, uh, we uh, shouldn't name the shooter. We don't want to enhance his infamy, et cetera, et cetera. So the media took that, that and ran with it. Never named him, never named anyone. Uh, the RCMP was able to hide behind this and the notion that everything that the, the RCMP did, the inquiry would do and would be trauma informed. Therefore, we're not going to upset anyone. Everything's going to be coddled. We're going to use restorative justice principles. And I warned from the beginning, this is all going to be used as a shield for the police to hide behind, not testify. And eventually that came true. A couple of weeks ago, you might recall, the RCMP union went before the commission to ha have all RCMP officers exempted from testifying at the MCC because it would be too traumatic for them. You know, 70 Mounties, 70 took the summer off in 2020 because they were stressed out. 70. There wasn't that many involved in or spotted workmen or, or whatever. So this was, a, no, this is a black bark against the RCMP. And now what has happened at the commission, families are upset. The lawyers themselves are, are saying negative things. I mean, yesterday, uh, Josh Bryson, one of the lawyers representing uh, the Bond family, got up and said, this is not transparent. This is not an inquiry. He scolded them. A couple of days ago, Daryl Curry, who is the assistant uh, deputy police chief at Onslow Belmont Fire Hall, where it, which was notoriously shot up by the Mounties, uh, took a strip off of the, the commission saying, this is a cover-up. Wearing his uniform, he says, you're not doing what you're supposed to do. You know, like this is how, how it's at the point it's at. Paul, is, is it entirely naive to think that when something this horrific happens, regardless of how unique the circumstances may have been that particular night, you know, the combination of all the things that happened, the police car, the police uniform, the lack of proper communication equipment, all of it, all of it, the perfect storm to turn into this absolute tragedy. Is it really naive to think people wouldn't want to learn from this so that it would never happen again? Yeah, I mean, you want people to learn from this. But one of the problems in Canada in dealing with the RCMP, and I experienced this out in BC and Vancouver back in 2008, 2009, that as problematic as the force has been and continues to be, many people don't want to hear it. They say, oh, we love our Mounties. They're a national symbol. Um, you know, they made a mistake. Get on, move on. Well, they can't get away with that. I mean, when I was out there in 2008, I talked about the problems that existed in Surrey and with staffing and things like that. Well, I was yelled at and belittled by the RCMP. Well, look what's happened since then. You know, Surrey decided they got to take over their own policing. It's not, it didn't just happen accidentally. There are problems. The, RC, the other problem that the government is defending against is the RCMP by its own admission. I added a council committee in Ottawa the other day. They admitted that recruitment is down 50%. Now, the, of the number of people who want to become mounties, a third of them drop out. So they can't, they can't do what they're supposed to do. They're, they're, the force in its current model with contract policing is unsustainable. But nobody at the political level wants to deal with it. 
And this is this whole incident now in Nova Scotia has forced their hands because something's going to have to be done. I've been warning about this for over four books, pointing out the flaws in the organization and that it's, a, you know, I've said in the past, it's a danger to itself, to its members and to the public, the way it is construed now. Paul Polango, thank you so much for sharing more about the book. Um, I certainly hope that people read it and people get the message. Well, thank you very much for having me. Call me anytime. <laughs>